Hello. Hi, John. Who is it? Who's me? Who is it? Hello. <laughs> Who is it? Hello. It's the plumber. I've come to fix the sink. Candygram from Mongo. Candygram from Mongo. Hi, Merlin. Hi, John. <laughs> he sound awake. Yeah, well, I am awake. I woke up a while back and uh, been busy uh, doing important uh, high-level work here. <laughs> You're working at a high level today, huh? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm just uh, well. You know, I'm working at a high level, and the work I'm doing is high-level work. Wow, that is a good Monday. Yes, it is. Yes, I'm hosting a show tonight, which is in the family of uh, shows where, I guess, that, uh, I mean, I think when they pitched the show to me, they were like, oh, you don't have to do any work. You don't have to do anything. Just just be up on stage and, and um, you know, host, whatever that is. I don't even know who they are, but I'm just going to tell you they always say that. Yeah. But, you know, it seems like if that's what they say, then I'm just going to go I'm going to go on on their say so and just show up. But you're going to have to dress and get there and yeah, then probably remember things. Mhm. Mhm. They don't mm-hmm. tell you that. I do have to remember a few things. I do have to. Do Are you that. an MC? Yeah, I think you know when I was in high school, I couldn't think of a better job than MC. Like that seemed to me to be the absolute pinnacle. If you had achieved everything in life, you were asked to be the MC. Mm-hmm. Because the MC is not the talent. He's not the he's not the booker. He's not the he doesn't own the club. The MC shows up in a tuxedo, he leaves in a tuxedo. But he's there. He's at the center of everything. I really believed that MC was the greatest job. And as I got older and put away childish things, Mm. I started to realize that MC is not the greatest job. I think it can be a really good job. First of all, I know from mutual friends of ours that it can be weirdly lucrative given the, Mm. once you get good at it, like given the amount of work you actually have to do in terms of preparation, but you got, here's what you got to be careful for. Well, first of all, I agree with you. I think being an MC is, is awesome. And I think it's more pressure than most people realize. Yeah. Because yeah. you have to be at least familiar enough that people go, ladies and gentlemen, your master of ceremonies, John. And like, yeah, right. And they're going to go, who? Like, yeah, right. So they got to know who you are. But then also, you got to be careful. I, I have a friend um, who uh, he got roped into like being like <laughs> organizing the benefit for his kid's school. Oh, yeah. And I think I've, it was presented to him. This is our friend we were talking about uh, yesterday. But, you know, and they're like, hey, you're funny. You know funny people. Can you do this benefit? And, of course, nested in that job, on the one hand, you got the MC job of, like, show up, read something off a card, and riff if you have to fill time. Right. And seem enthusiastic about everything that happens and then have a pithy remark about what just happened. That's kind right. of being an MC, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that sounds right, about right. But you know, but as usual in in everything, including entertainment, there was a lot nested in that. That basically came down to like, can you put together a show? Yes. Write things. Right. Get your get your big shot celebrity TV friends to come and do this. Yeah. And it ends up being a giant unpaid project for people who are not used to doing that kind of work. 
Yeah, the, the, the big shows I've emceed, the big benefit shows that I've emceed, all fall into the category, as, I've, as I have outlined elsewhere, of uh, that phenomenon where uh, the people that put on 250 shows a year uh, send you one email, and it has all the information you need about the show. The people who put on one show a year send you 250 emails, and not a single one of them has any information in it that's usable. And so I have emceed some big shows, some big benefit galas for some uh, worthwhile organizations, but but they they end up being such a clusterfuck of of uh, too many you know too many stage managers. Too many ideas, you know. They, I showed up. I showed up to one, and they handed me a script that they had written. Like I was cold. Like, yeah, and I was like, "Wow, I would have liked to have seen this yesterday." Um, this is a full script. <laughs> this isn't just like some. This isn't an outline. This is like a full <laughs> script. So basically, what you have asked me to do is stand up on stage and read this from this paper because I have I have half an hour, and not in your words. Oh no, you know, just like hello ladies and germs. <laughs> and speaking and speaking of troublesome plumbing problems, <laughs> you know, woo. But tonight I think they are hiring uh, tonight they have hired me to be me, which is a good that's a good gig. Yeah, but if you don't you can, get that too often. If you can start getting that, <laughs> you can start getting hired to be you. Yeah, but do you know like to a, a certainty like which you they think they're getting? Well, that's the thing. I've done a pretty pretty uh worth worthwhile job of calibrating people's idea of the fake me you know like there's 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 a pretty good fake me out there that everybody thinks is the real me and so when somebody when somebody hires me to be me i assume they mean fake me mm-hmm. that i have you know carefully crafted fake me and i show up as fake me. <laughs> if they think that they're hiring me. This section here about uh, the children tap dancing. Can we switch that out for about two and a half hours of me talking about United Airlines? <laughs> there was a time. <laughs> the people who are, who really are hiring me and want actual me. Yeah. I, don't, I don't. Jesus. There's not enough money in the world. It reminds me a little bit of uh, I haven't had a whole lot of experience with. Um, you know, programming and development stuff, but certainly enough uh, over the period that I was doing it to know that they are similar in one way, which is people have a really good idea in their head of what a finished product looks like. You, like, you know what an iOS app, like a good iOS app looks like. You know what a really good, well, but I've, you know, I've, like what a good stage show looks like, but you have absolutely no idea what goes into making that thing. Oh, right. Right. Yeah, and, no, and, you don't want to see this. Song. Well, you went through this when we made your website. You you handled it really well, and you participated very um, aggressively and handsomely. And you and Sean both wrote a lot of stuff. You understood that it was going to be. I think if one thing, one small success I had with that site was getting you to understand that the site was going to be as good as what you personally put into it. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it would be just another bunch of files on the internet. Mm-hmm. And I think that actually turned out really well. I'm proud of that site. But you know, when you go into something like like this, like you say. Somebody who does it, somebody, if you work with somebody who's like, you know, a production, a producer type person, you know, somebody who actually like deals with people all the time, knows what happens, knows what, knows what questions people ask for. You you forwarded me an email you got recently (laughs) that was, I mean, it was, it was like, 
it was like Heart of Darkness. It was really, really, really long, and it was kind of hard to tease out exactly the information that they should have known that you would want out of it. Yeah, well, it's like the first time I went to South by Southwest, and I thought that we were uh, we got done with our sh- our show, and there was this huge crowd of people standing right at the foot of the stage. Like I'm trying to load my amp off the stage, and there are all these people like waving their business cards at me, and I was thinking, "This is it. I've hit it. I've." Like, I'm just going to pluck these business cards and they're all going to say Sony BMG and, or you know, half of them are probably going to be oh, cashier's okay. checks. This is like Obama at the uh, Democratic Convention the a Democratic few years convention. ago. That's right. right. This it, is it like, your moment. This is your John's I Have a Dream speech. That's right. This was a career-making turn. First time at South By, back when South By really mattered, and this was going to be the moment. And I and so I get off the stage, and I'm like, hello, nice to meet you all. You know, and I'm, I'm like taking my time with each person. I'm looking at their business cards. And little by little, it starts to dawn on me after a half an hour that every one of these business cards is like, Bill and Frank's record label out of Mobile, Alabama. <laughs> you can see the perforations on the card. <laughs> and, and, you know, and that realization that like, oh, they came to South by Southwest looking for the band that was going to make their record label viable. Right, right. Not, this isn't a moment where I am, you know, where actual suits are here to give me opportunities. This is like, but it, but it looks close enough to that, mm-hmm. that I, I see how people get, I see how people get rooked into business relationships all the time where it's like, oh, wait, no, you were going to help me. Right. And I, so I get emails like that all the time where it's like, we would love to give you a big show. And I go, okay, well, what's the deal? And they're like, well, all we need you to do is promote it and devise it and sell it and be the man of it and the, tell us how to do it. And also <laughs> find the money for it, and it's just like you are not offering me anything. It's kind of like it's kind of like going up to somebody and your elevator pitch being, "I would like to. I wish you would give me the honor of letting me take you out to a really, really fancy dinner." That's kind of what the pitch feels like. But then you realize they don't know how to cook. It's really that basically they want you to have them over for dinner. They've never been to a restaurant before. They, they don't know do what not food have any is. money. No. Yeah. No, and I, that I, happens all the time now. I feel like at, a, at in my family historiography hmm. there is at the at the core of my father's family there is a similar situation where my my grandmother was you know, my grandmother's family was an old Seattle family that didn't have any money. They were the white Russians of Seattle. All their <laughs> friends were rich. They lived in a big house in the right neighborhood, but they didn't, but they were, uh, how do you say, not uh, rich. And uh, grand, great-grandfather was a judge. You know, that, I think they... They, 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 see, had, they seemed successful. Yeah they, yeah, they they had prominence without any money. And I think it's, looking at myself and, and my father's family, it is because no one had any business acumen. But they raised their daughter to be a real catch for a prince. And she was an opera singer, and she had toured Europe before the war, and she was, you know, cultured and elegant and all these things. And in World War I, she went to Europe 
to sing for the soldiers in the trenches. Uh, back when soldiers in the trenches wanted to hear opera. And in between, because the, the way that war was fought, they would then, she would sing for the soldiers up by the front, and then they would drive her back to Paris and wine and dine, you know, for a week or two, and then go back up and sing for the soldiers again. It was not, there was not a tremendous amount of hardship. But she was being squired around by generals, and, you know, she wrote a book called A Nightingale in the Trenches, which is a, which is a terrible book. Um, but it, t- it tells these fascinating stories about like, oh, well, and here comes John Pershing in the back, in the back of an open car and, and they, they go off together to, uh, you know, to the Moulin Rouge and like, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's all very glamorous, but then she meets my grandfather, David Roderick senior, who is the son of a Welsh immigrant coal miner and who had been raised to succeed in America to banish all the, the ugliness of being immigrants. And so he had memorized Shakespeare and he had memorized uh, all of the, you know, he'd memorized Whitman and he was a cultured, he, he could quote a, a, at length from the Bible, and he spoke with a haughty manner and was a young lieutenant. And he'd made up a backstory for himself that he was descendant from Scottish kings. This and is when they, your family still thought it was Scottish. This is when we still thought we were Scottish. He knew he wasn't Scottish, but he was the one that started this, this uh, line of bull. Anyway, they meet, they meet in World War I. In the glamorous, heady days at the end of the war, when the you know the far off cannon fire, and yet they are drinking champagne here at the in the rearward area, and each one of them was actually there, totally full of shit, like misrepresenting themselves as a member of America's aspirational class. They were each one, each one knowing who they are, thought they were getting a catch. That's right. They were. People at Gatsby's party. And they saw one another across a crowded dance floor. And I'm sure, you know, either one of them could have used their line, you know, what, what their carefully crafted line. They could have used that to, to meet and marry someone who had money, who was perhaps culturally impoverished, but maybe the heir to the singer sewing machine family fortune or maybe the heiress of uh the uh you know the like my grandmother's brother did marry the heiress of the buster brown shoe fortune but that money never made it to me in any case it wasn't until they were married and back in the states that they finally realized that they had hoodwinked one another with their baloney. <laughs> At the exact same moment, they both said, I'm going to need a little money this month. <laughs> yeah, they were like, uh, what? But, and here's the real tragedy. Here's the American tragedy. They were in love. And so it was unthinkable to them that they would not, that they would separate for such coarse reasons as that they were, that their entire founding <laughs> <They were> mutually <laughs> fraudulent <laughs> yeah that their entire founding myth was was uh was a 
a blatant lie. And so here we are. That's so a great story. That's a sweet story. They just, they just they just shut the lie down the pipeline. They were like, let's just keep telling this lie on both sides, and uh, just you know raise their kids to believe that their their kids were <laughs> descended from the Scottish lords, and that there was money waiting in a trunk. <laughs> To this day, Somewhere. you find yourself looking up in the trees, wondering, could there be a bag of money hanging there? I do. I go. I uh, I go up it's in the your attic. It's birthright. And I'm like, Is there a trunk in the attic somewhere that I haven't seen? There's got to like, be a false bottom here somewhere. That's right. I'm looking for the false bottom everywhere I go. I'm knock. I'm knocking. Looking for the hollow space in the wall. That is such an American story, though. Yep. It's yep. It really it's a sweet story, and it's a very American story, though, because there is an element of fake it till you make it in America. I mean, look at how many people anglicize their names when they come here. It right. really it's such a it's a ch- such a chance for a, a fresh start, and you get one good suit, you know, and a haircut. Well, and, and I feel like if either one of them had this mysterious talent, which is business acumen, like they had all the opportunity in the world. And they had this backstory. If if only a little business acumen had entered the picture, and they had succeeded, then the the success in America validates the the bullshit story mm-hmm. in so many families. So that all of a sudden, well, that's why everybody in America is descended from Robert E. Lee. That's why everybody, in, you know, like everybody in America has a great uh you know has some some part of their family story the, where they arrived on the mayflower and it's all baloney but it but at some point somebody had success and then their version of the story was accepted and what's funny about my family is that half of my half of my relatives have actually become successful they have married well and you would if you if they were sitting here right now, their version of my grandmother and grandfather's story would be very different from mine because they will, they not only do they accept the kind of, uh, Hey, geography, but like, it's kind of crucial. It's kind of crucial to their own identity that some of those stories be true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's really, I'm thinking about my own family and people I've known, and it's, you know, it's like everybody, I think for a long time it's been critical to maintain the family's secrets. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, for some reason I can't help thinking of like William Faulkner and like, you know, and learning these different sides of the story and learning what really happened. And, you know, sometimes that shared familial lie is, can, can be like a great bond. Mm-hmm. Don't oh, you think? Hell yes. Well, and I, you know, I, I, at the beginning of the grunge years, I remember being here in Seattle, kind of walking around the bars and the times and the towns and listening to people tell their family story and their backstory and realizing that I was in a new world because in the grunge years, <clears throat> Every kid was telling a story about how his family was garbage. Like, the fashion at the time was to say, I'm white trash, I'm descended from losers. 
Oh, I, I, I have never had anything. I've re- had to raise myself and maybe my siblings since I was young. I've always been an independent. That's right. And it was part of that, you know, in 1991, like in 1986, every town had a, a small handful of punk rockers who, you know, who, uh, who smoked clove cigarettes under the, under the statue in the town square. And they were, you know, they, uh, unless you lived in a few, in a few rare environments, like, you know, somewhere in Southern California, Washington, DC, New York. I mean, there was, there was not, if you were growing up in Iowa in the early eighties, like, and you were a punk rocker, you were, you were one of a very small little group of people. But by 1991 or 1992, every single person our age had some story about themselves that they had been punked that whole time. And part of that story was that they were, they had been abused. They had raised themselves. They had, they had nothing, nowhere to fall back. It was, they were from, you know, they were from this garbage strain of American nobodies. And all you have to do is go look at their high school yearbook and you realize, Oh no, that's not true at all. Like your picture is in the yearbook. That, yeah, you, you the, like showed up for school. Yeah, that's the first sign that you're not a garbage person, or whatever you <laughs> whatever you think a garbage person is. But I mean, I heard the word white or the phrase white trash so much in ninety through ninety five. Like it, everybody was claiming to be it in Seattle, especially. And up until that point, it had never occurred to me that anybody would have a a backstory that didn't include some at some point that you had come over on the Mayflower because, you know, because my family was so invested in this, in, in, in that, what was effectively a dying version of American middle-class social aspiration. My, my cousins were still worried about getting into the daughters of the American revolution and having enough documentation to prove that they could be members. And all of a sudden, Around me, all my peers were like, my dad's in prison and my, you know, my mom was a whore. It's like, wait a minute. Your dad worked for Hewlett Packard <laughs> and right. your, your mom, uh, you know, has only had sex with two people in her whole life. Like, what are you talking about? It was, it was just as much baloney, but, but, but the, um, the aspiration had, had flipped entirely. I still see that. I mean, you know, I still see that a lot in my generation. You don't see it in the kids. But people your and my age, if you if you sit down and and hear their family story, you still hear a lot of you still hear them struggling to 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 put across this this tale, this like wild west hillbilly tale. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think part of it is uh, trying to manage expectations and, like, set a certain mm. bar. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's sort of like the kid who always turns his paper in late. Well, of course it sucked. I only did it and it took me two minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, like, if you can create this world where, like, you have improbably succeeded against all odds and you obviously – so you're trying to get yourself the credibility of having more tenacity – more intestinal fortitude than the people around you. But then also, like, I think this happens till this day. I mean, something we were talking about the other day too, is <clears throat> this kind of like kind of weird, weird version of social climbing that people do. And it could, it, I think it happens most commonly with people where you try to like, um, canoodle up to somebody who's a little more famous than you in order to canoodle up to the next level from them. And mm-hmm. you basically get 
the you want to get the equivalent of a recommendation, a letter of recommendation from from that person. But it also it also the reason it reminds you of the Faulkner stuff is like it's also like you can decide which parts of your life that are really maybe even eighty percent true you choose to tell people about. Yeah, like I can <clears throat> I can talk about like you know punk rock shows I went to. At a certain time, or I could talk about being like um, most talented senior, depending mm. on what suits me. That's right. You were most talented senior. Uh, yeah, I was, I, technically, I was also a class clown, but you can only win one. Most talented mustache <laughs> in an eighteen-year-old. I think you should have won. <laughs> it took me like two years to get that. Well, but, I think um, about the. I think about the, the this generation that's coming up, and particularly, and I, I'm not sure the Twitter world and the internet world that I live in. I'm not sure how representative it is of the world at large. <laughs> You're not, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but we joked about this at at uh, at our Roderick on the Line live show, which is the the idea of um, like if if you if you were 16 years old right now and you were getting a, a steady input of check your privilege, check your privilege, and and the the presumption being that the more privileged you are the more the more other people can point to you and call you privileged the actual the, the less authority you have to speak that that this notion that right like you're the, the the group that you represent in my mind has had more than ample opportunity to be represented in the public forum right so now's your turn to shut up and 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 to feel bad about it right and so authority to speak is becoming in the in these certain segments of the world which i which i don't when i meet people in their early 20s i don't see them as overburdened they generally seem like a, a pretty happy generation but then online there's this there's this simultaneous dialogue which is which is basically like shut up shut up shut up like you all have to shut up even though telling people to shut up is bullying and bad, but the but the effect of the effect of this check your privilege first world problems uh, constant sort of uh, wave after wave of of attempts to censor anybody that doesn't have like a perfect backstory where 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 their story deserves to be heard or whatever. I can't imagine that it isn't creating. A similar kind of identity wave in people where they're searching their family histories, they're searching their own stories for ways in which they are victims of history or victims of of oppression such that their that their opinions matter or right. such that they that they no longer have to self censor self apologize uh and that they can that they can actually speak with some authority, some authority earned by your forefathers or earned by the uh, earned by your victimization. And I can't imagine what what kind of tangled stories people are telling about themselves in bars, where it's not enough anymore to just say like, "Oh, my people were white trash." Like you have to say, "My people were." Um, my people were also brutalized by history. And although I might appear to be, did I ever tell you this story? I was, this is so funny. It's recurring. It's occurring to me now. I was in a bar and a guy, six foot seven guy with 
bright red hair, red eyelashes, like red guy, freckles, whose name was like Seamus McKinnaman. He and I are talking in this bar, and I make some reference to, to being a Celt. Like, well, you know, as a Celt, I'm sure you feel you, you, you something, 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 something. I don't remember what I said to the guy. And he stopped me very serious, and he said, I, I look Celtic, but I'm Native American. <laughs> and I wasn't sure if he was kidding, and I was like, tell me more. Hmm. And he was like, you know, my grandmother was a Choctaw, and my on my grandfather's side, you know, she was or he he was a a uh, you know an Iroquois, and so you know I'm, I mean I look, I guess Irish if that's you know to you, but but I'm <laughs> to a breeder like you, <laughs> yeah, but I'm a Native American, and I was like. Wow. Okay. All right. I mean, I don't know. I and I didn't press him for like what percentage of Choctaw was your grandmother. I mean, it's not important, right? Because now all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you're like uh, the East. You're like Stasi. Yeah, right? I'm not. It's not my job to to like uh, to 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 do. But do you, the, but you just nailed it though. All you have to do is declare that. Yeah. And and now you know. So here's here's one part of this, and this is I don't even like saying this, but you know. It seems like there are so many loud, strong voices right now that are very, very angry. And the the part about it that I think is kind of a bummer is that people people are being actively encouraged to only find a strong voice if they can do it to immediate immediately ally themselves with a group of people. There's not there's not that much encouragement that I see out there to be a singular voice anymore because singular being a singular voice will get you like really smacked down at this point. And I think you can controversialize what almost anybody says because it's, it's like almost like you're straying too far from the pack. I, I wouldn't want to just say politically correct. That's that's too too oversimplified. But there's there's so much identity politics right now that I think it's becoming almost irresistible for people to ally themselves even if they don't if you like belong with that group, you can have all the sympathy in the world that you want for, and it's certainly, I mean, in an ideal world, we would all just have sympathy for each other for being human beings, but that doesn't really count anymore. Right. Now you actually have to, you have to show your bona fides that you are, you are, you are for all practical purposes, native American. Therefore you now have, you're so closely allied with this that you can, we can get, get you past the privilege bar that you're allowed to have some kind of an opinion at this point, because otherwise you're just, you're just another uh, part of the problem. Yeah, well, and, and this but you've got to be part of that group. If I feel like it's like when anybody who strays too far from the pack or who gets too far off message is really kind of shouted down as being part of this this you know amorphous blob of the problem, the one percent, the whatever, all this otherness, otherness, otherness. And if you can just find some group that will that you can kind of sidle up to that that is is the opposite of the otherness, then then you're allowed to be all mad and you're allowed to talk. If you get off, uh, the, what's confusing is that if you get off message, the the message being like the, um, you know the, wh- whatever this uh, perfect storm we are talking about that's happening in the culture now, the message which is very very focused on rights, uh, on on the rights denied on the 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 the, the, the overdue rights. The, the the rights that are i mean it's the 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 chomsky world where the 
where the if you get off if you get off Chomsky message, it doesn't matter what you're saying outside of that message. Whatever it is, you are on the other message, right? I mean, as soon as you get off the the, the dialectic, whatever you're saying, even even presumably like uh, innocuous material, you are you are you are being accused of speaking on behalf of the big problem. You're automatically uh, a reactionary. You're automatically part of the the counter revolutionary movement. Yeah, I wrote a. I, I, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman died, and and I, uh, somebody pointed out to me that I had written a few years ago an article about um, about creativity and drugs, and so I reposted it, um, just saying like, this is a thing I wrote about rock and roll, uh, about the relationship between creativity and drugs, and how it how well, the and the some of the mistakes we make thinking that the two are connected. And I got, you know, I, uh, people replied to me and said, thank you for doing that or a nice article. And then somebody, uh, and obviously a fan, a fan of me and a fan enough to go read a, click a link and go read an article I wrote, wrote me and said, I really liked your article, except for the part where you said wives and girlfriends contribute to the problem because that implies that women can't be musicians. And all of this is in a tweet, right? And <clears throat> what wasn't overt in the article that I wrote was that I was writing it in response to the plight of a female musician I know in Seattle who was drinking and drugging herself to death. And everybody in town knew it. She's a famous musician. She was killing herself with drugs. And... I had I had an encounter with her in a bar and watched as people all around her, including a lot of rock stars who had seen their friends die. They were all facilitating this drug problem because everybody's too embarrassed to address it. And also, it's not cool. And also, oh, that's just how how she is how how blank is or whatever and so i wrote this article like no don't sit and watch your friends die that's not cool her drug problem and her creativity are not connected your drugs and creativity are not connected you like can we not save this person and the article was obvious enough to people in seattle that i got a few phone calls from also other rock musicians who were like, thank you for doing that. We really need to do something about her. She's going to die, et cetera, et cetera. And it ended up that she went to rehab and is, and is, is, has survived. But so I get this tweet from this concerned reader. Who's like, I, I liked the article except for this. And, and obviously this is a, this is a fan and somebody who, appreciates where I'm coming from, right? She already knows what I'm on about. But she felt, and I have no idea how old this person is. She could be 20, she could be 50. But she felt her job as a reader was to detect the, the to, was to, was 
her antenna were so uh, sensitive that she found this moment in the piece where I said wives and girlfriends and her alarm bells went off and she needed to alert me to that and needed uh, basically to say, I see this and you need to be re-educated. That's the to, word. That's the to, word. To never use wives and girlfriends again without also saying husbands and boyfriends or without also stipulating that that females can be musicians too or without also, you know, like... You didn't, you didn't adequately prepare. You, you did not... Um, you were not being careful enough in predicting all of the ways that right. that could need to be corrected for right. a notional person. And so this reader, in with her hyper zeroed in sensitivity, failed to recognize that the entire article was about a female musician, and that the degree to which I masked that was because I did not want to slander. You weren't like trying to shame and out that right. woman. I'm yeah. writing this article for a general audience. All the people that know her and know me knew it was about her and knew it was a, a, a knew the article was meant for a for an audience of people that were supposed to recognize themselves in it and stop helping this woman kill herself. But but uh, so this close reader failed to read the big article and failed to see that it was that you know that I had worked long and hard to make it a, uh, to to take gender out of it in order to spare this person the embarrassment but also even if that weren't the case wives and girlfriends do facilitate uh, are a problem like wives and girlfriends are a problem and it and I don't need to say husbands and boyfriends because the husbands that are a problem for female rock musicians are wives, basically. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't. But suffice to say that that this the, the the idea that if you are not exactly on language message, that you are actually actively working on behalf of forces of conservatism and revanchism, like to be to be off message is not to be neutral. It is to be it is to be immediately working on behalf of evil forces is um is a crazy is a crazy place to be it is crazy to be challenged to justify the political message of every message well and, and to show that you've and to show in a way that is frankly most of the time extremely ham-fisted and not very elegant, and certainly not very subtle, to prove to everybody through three to five paragraphs that you have done all of your math and can show it. That you have, that, you know, it's, I, I feel like there's so much pressure right now in the public discourse for everything to be about everything. Mm. There's, there's, there's really, I feel like as soon as somebody starts to say, if I say something as simple as, you know what, I just don't like arguing with people on the internet. Well, then, then if I'm not arguing with somebody about what it is that they want to argue about, that means that 
I don't even want to agree. I don't even, I don't want to even want to argue about like whether I agree with you. I just think it's unseemly and it's a thing I don't like doing. But by choosing not to do that, it makes it seem like I'm a mute member of this class of people who really just actively enjoy seeing people put down and I will not raise my voice. That's not the case at all. Right. I, I do think, I do think that people are a really complicated problem and to say something interesting about anything, you have to have the right amount of introspection and specificity, and you have to talk about a thing at a time. Well, and, and that's, this, that's what's so confusing about this girl is that she, or a woman, or whoever it was that, that, that sent me this tweet, that she immediately also felt empowered at, to challenge me as though she were my thesis advisor. You know, she was not, she wasn't coming from a place of of her of intellectual humility or a place of even like i admire you her 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 tone and her her approach was immediately like for lack of a better term matriarchal or or like she she was coming to me with superior wisdom right that she had read something that no one else perceived or that i was unaware that of she was revealing some uh, cataract you didn't know you had yeah, she was here now to, as you, as as we agree, the, the the operative term. She was here to re-educate me from a place. I mean, and I think backed up by the by the um, authority of the party. When I whenever I hear that word, I because uh, I used to use that word in that same kind of context. It was a very common thing in the liberal community to say for many many years. Is that really this is just a problem of education? We the thing is, people would be better about not wasting natural resources if they were just more educated they about what the problem is. Education. Right. And the thing is, what if what if people said that about you? Like, what if people said the problem, the thing that you need to understand about everything that's wrong with your political beliefs is or your whatever your whatever your beliefs are is it just a, it's, a, it's just a question of education yeah you just don't you just don't have the information that we have right. available and so uh, all the times you get into an argument at a sports bar with some jackass who's trying to tell you that the kids shouldn't kids shouldn't be immunized and uh you know and for that matter women should be in the home or whatever chemtrails. it is chemtrails well but really just anything that you believe when you, as soon as you start telling people that it's a matter of education i think you lose a little bit of your intellectual authority because at that point you're you're what you're saying is i will sit here and and patiently listen to what you have to say until i get the opportunity to show you how you are fundamentally wrong and that you will never be able to advance intellectually until you accept what it is that I know is true. It's just right. a matter of education. The twenty. It books, sounds like fucking Pol Pot. The 20 books that I have read from the age of 16 to 26. 11 by the same author. <laughs> uh, the, the, some, uh, some of which were in uh, my high school syllabus. Some of them were in my college <laughs> syllabus. Some of them I found. Uh, through friends, but those you know twenty to thirty books that I have really you know read and digested are the sum total of human knowledge, and the twenty or thirty books that you 've read, some of which overlap mine, probably a lot of them do we 've both probably read the great Gatsby so let 's say you know the thirty percent of the books of the twenty to thirty books that you 've read uh, and and also your intellectual process in digesting them somehow led you so astray whereas the 20 to 30 books that i've read have given me this this like diamond tip insight mm-hmm. into the whole human condition i i 
Let me do one other thing though. There, with what that person said, which I mean, I can understand that. I mean, if I, if somebody, I mean, as much as we kid and stuff on here, when people say like super like racially offensive things and are obviously like just dropping dropping science on you about how the world is, yeah, that, that bugs me. You know, yeah, I, I don't sure. want I don't want to be around that. Sure, but you know, first of all, I'm not sure what I can do to necessarily turn that person around that I've never met. But you know, with what that what woman said, I would be even though I would never do this publicly. What I would be inclined to say is, so you just decided you don't want to write songs or be in a band because of what I said? Well, no, of course not. Okay, why is that? Well, because I'm smarter than that. I know that. Okay, so you assume that all of these other people that you theoretically care about, this mass of people that are so stupid and malleable that these words that I chose in this essay are going to make them not want to start a band, is that is that the case that you're going to make? Because all of a sudden, now you're the one who's smarter than all these other people because you see you see through the matrix, right? You, uh, it's a they live thing where you've got the sunglasses, and that's what I think is actually it's a little it's a little bit offensive because you get to pick and choose like who you get to decide you're smarter than and it's really just a question of going and educating everybody about all these little people that need to be looked after in this completely paternalistic way this is what's so interesting about what's happening in france right now with the with the the guy donking the lady a guy donked a lady in france oh, the, i think the president was uh, having intercourse with someone who wasn't his wife oh see that happens a lot there no that doesn't Sorry. interest me Continue. at all um no the so the whole the whole notion of french identity in uh, sort of the the whole history of france post-revolution was the french said we don't see race we don't uh, if you come to france and adopt the french language and learn the french culture you are a frenchman and it doesn't matter if you were born in algeria or in vietnam we the the idea of a frenchman of a of a of a citizen of France is that you adopt the these these the following uh premises that you know uh, that the that a, that a citizen has life liberty and equality and uh that we are all equal under the law and you know a lot of notions in France that came from the American Revolution a lot of notions in France that are internal to France but that that there is a French identity that supersedes all other cultural, racial, uh, economic um, identities. And that, for 200 years, has been the core of, the, of, of what it meant to be French. And, 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 and in a way it was the most democratic notion of citizenship. Do you think most people believe that? I think in France, they really do. And including people who are not Gallic white people. Absolutely. I mean, okay. this is, this is, uh, this is the, um, this is France's version of the melting pot. You know, America's mm-hmm. version of the melting pot is you show up. Now you're an American and you, and anybody can become a millionaire. Work hard and, and play by the rules. That's right. And all of our, and everybody's vote and it's fair here. And so you can be anybody could be president. You know that's the American version. The French version is is maybe understandably more identity based. Like it isn't just that you um, that anybody can be president. It is that we are all now equal under the idea that we are that we are 
Frenchmen. Like we are brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, right? Um, and politic politically, brothers and sisters. You know, uh, it, it's a very it's it's a super seductive idea to them, and it's the core of the whole idea. I mean, and we we only look at it from outside, and a lot of it seems. Um, a lot of it is kind of the the, the French pomposity and the, the the arrogance. Like the this is the this is the sunny side of that. You know that this is the um, this is what's beautiful about being French. But as in the last twenty years, there have been these massive waves of immigration to France, and the French have been wrestling with how to maintain this thing that is so key to them and it's like it, it is it's like a religion to them uh would you would you also include the things like language and trying to lock down on things like lefax i mean the, the oh, fact of wanting the french language to stay intact is part of that for sure yeah. the language is key is is the uh, is the heart of it it's the key to it and so their approach to immigration has always been welcome thank you for coming to france here is your book of becoming French. <laughs> it involves you now speaking French and thinking French. And at home, I suppose, if you want to keep eating couscous, you're, that is fine. Here, are, here is a recipe book of how to make your couscous taste more French. <laughs> but in the meantime, we are happy to have you here, and we are going to do everything we can to create a, a, a raceless society, uh, assuming, of course, that you're not a gypsy or a Jew, but let's leave that aside. But actually, we welcome the Jews now. Still a little weird on the gypsies. But as, as successive waves of people have emigrated from North Africa, now all of a sudden there are these gigantic ghettos where the, the population is largely... Arab and Muslim. And so the French have been going through this whole, uh, this, this incredible identity, like uh, national cultural identity problem where they're like, well, we can't have people walking around in burqas because it's not French. It isn't a question of that. We are, uh, racist against Muslims or anti Muslim, but, but the goal in France is that we all be French. It is, how we manage equality it is our whole idea of equality that we all be not the same but that we share the same values but, but that we all be primarily french is that right that, well that we share these these core values which are you know this is kind of the, the there's a similar argument happening in america except we don't share core values here but there, they have these core democratic post-revolution values. They 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 think they do, or they, it, it's their values are 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 closer to the heart of the idea of themselves. This shared sense of values, and it's you know, it is uh, well. So it has driven them now to pass a law against wearing burqas, and from an American sensibility, we're. You know, that law that, that you can't wear a burqa in France in, in a public school or in, a, in an office, uh, like a government office, 
we just uh, 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 Americans freak out at, at the notion, and it seems very paternalistic, and it seems very racist. Well, it seems I wouldn't even say paternalistic; it's totalitarian, right? Totalitarian. But from the French standpoint, it is like they are trying to. It's well, from the French idea, it is a very liberal idea. This is what's confusing: the liberal notion of like French liberalism requires that everybody aspire to be part of this family, and to be outside of it seems to them to be a act of totalitarianism or to be an act of hostility that threatens the whole uh that, that threatens the safety of their um of the of their melting pot right if you don't if you don't want to melt into being french like being french is is at the key of having all the rights of man that that, that that you can then therefore not expect like you can't expect the rights if you don't also perform the duties and so their so their culture is at war with itself right now it's tearing itself apart and it is it, it's it, it is a um it's very interesting to look at it from here Mm-hmm. To look at it from the United States and see that 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 there, I mean, obviously, like the Le Pen people, the the uh, the cultural xenophobes in France are are on this issue too. But there's a whole stripe of people that you know that are coming at this question from a liberal democratic perspective. There, that is. Um, that's that's very confusing to watch from here and very i think instructive informative yeah i mean all all the lofty ideas um are it's easy enough to agree on something like do you believe in freedom of speech well of course everybody agrees in freedom of speech until you get into the specifics of what that really means mm-hmm. are you allowed to say things that aren't true are you allowed to say things that are unkind? Are you allowed to say things that stir up hate in people? Are you, you know, uh, do I, you know, can you if, shout fire in a crowded theater? Yeah, yeah. Or you know, or I think some people would say, uh, and this could go on really any end of the spectrum versus the other. Should I be expected to pay to publish speech that I definitely think is is hateful or untrue? For example, right. do I have right? an obligation should, to should we be paying? It? Should we be paying to have textbooks in our schools that that? say evolution is true should we be paying to have textbooks in our school that say that evolution is wrong i mean you know that's i'm probably splitting hairs here but i think anybody agrees on those big issues it's just it's implementation details (laughs) that are where you get all the truth well and this is why the supreme court of the united states and the congress and the presidency were such a were such a brilliant idea and you know the idea that the supreme court could Take a law and set limits on aspects of it. You know that the that 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 the the Congress made law. It went past the president, and he got to, you know, he got to take a swipe at it if he could. But then the citizens could challenge the law, and the court could make 
uh, well, could the court could rule uh, on be you know on behalf of us, like the idea that there was an us survived until not very long ago, and it's it's a um, it's a thing. But it's, that, like a, it's like a historical us. Well, yeah, and that that well, right. I mean, it, like, when, isn't that kind of what the Supreme Court is? It's speaking on behalf of us, but it's it's kind of to say, like, is this is this what was intended? No, no, I mean, well, you know, it, that is a modern problem. the The Supreme Court was always meant to be a was always meant to evolve, and the idea that the founders didn't intend that the court would interpret the conversation in modern terms is a crazy conservative reactionary nut story that the same kind of people that think the bible was written in english yeah right i mean and has has always had the same 66 books in it if if you've read anything about the founders the scalia notion that they meant that this you know that 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 the founders meant that we should try and get inside their minds and think about what they meant instead of that they meant exactly you know that they meant what they wrote and that we should be like interpreting that but Based on the fact that we now have handheld computers in our eyeglasses, or eye-held eye computers in our hand <laughs> face, glasses, face-held computers, <laughs> um, like it—it seems crazy to me. But no, I—I I mean the the evolved and ever-evolving notion that there was an American soul of a kind, or that there was an American identity that we were all aspiring to melt into was a notion that was still in place in uh, largely in place at least in the schools when you and I were kids and it was it was fraying and there were uh, obviously there was a there were whole segments of the population that said we're not even included in that you never included us in that and we want we want entry into it at the time, even then, the, it was only the fringe voices that said, we don't want entry into it. We want to burn it down. We want to tear that identity apart. Like, the vast majority of the disenfranchised only wanted to be franchised. And it's only in the last... To, only to have, the our, same, the same, have the same rights that anybody else already had. To have, to have the same rights and to be included in that notion of American and to be and to have their voices considered and to be to just expand the franchise to include everybody that really was already in it which is something that the french did much better than the americans did uh it, in in the sense that they had ex, that they that that franchise was expanded i mean and obviously like the dreyfus affair or whatever they they, they up through the war they were still pretty bad on jews and and um and Roma, but the, the the French have have sought to expand that franchise a lot more liberally than the Americans did. But it's only in the last twenty years that that the idea that that this Americanness, even that 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 our shared aspirations, that a commonality would be something that we would disparage. And something that an educated liberal person would want no part of, and would would want would would instead choose to mock and deride. You know that that to sit and talk about a uh, like 
an American identity, uh, to talk about that as something that is inherently oppressive, intrinsically oppressive, rather than something that is a, a framework that we can make that, and we should be trying to make better always, and that making it more inclusive is our goal rather than to you know to destroy the to destroy the framework in favor of a who, cons- who, who, who are you um, implying or who are you saying wants that or has been doing that? I feel like, 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 like <laughs> far right wing nut types. Well, like the, going to the compound kind of people. I feel like that. I feel like there is a huge go to the compound thread in liberalism now. Al- although it isn't to the compound, it is to a place of like a place of hyper multiculturalism to the point that all that it is that it's like George Bush's thousand points of light, except that thousand points of light is a thousand equal viewpoints, none of which can be privileged over any other so that it is a, so that every voice is heard in equal volume. And in that constellation of voices, there will be some collected wisdom. There will be some, there will, there will be a common knowledge or understanding that we can we cannot know yet we cannot know the result of this experiment until we have achieved it and to to guess at it is to second guess it which is which is to stand in the way of it and that our that the only valid goal can be a time when all voices are represented with with no privilege I mean, this is the idea of this of the word privilege and 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 flinging privilege at people as an epithet. That only, and this is this is the liberal side of this. Yeah, that only when we arrive at a place where no voice has pride of privilege, no voice is heard more loudly than any other, can we fully know ourselves or have, um, or or be close to achieving like an understanding, a, hu- a human understanding or a collective wisdom. And it's a, it's the, what I think is the undergirding idea of this, you know, this, this like quasi Marxist move on, uh, on the part of the intellectual world into uh, American left intellectual life to always be attacking privilege to always be second guessing language to always be um equalizing voices mm-hmm. the 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 only premise and it's an unspoken premise no one ever discusses it openly but the only premise i can see at the heart of it is the idea that only once all voices are heard only once all voices are equal can we know can we even know what our project is and be- because as you as you as you see anytime someone stands up and says i have an opinion the first question is what right do you have to speak who are you are you a yeah, are on, you, on whose on whose beleaguered behalf do you do you speak right are you just another middle class white person because we've heard what you have to say 
and it you know it is a blanket dismissal of and 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 the reality is what any one person has to say is in a lot of ways irrespective of what their race is or their class is right i mean the world of ideas the whole premise of it is that it can exist in one's mind that yes is influenced by its by its culture yes is influenced by its experience but also that's the beautiful thing about an idea you can have an idea that is in conflict with how you were raised with how you were how you uh, uh, the the culture in which you live it's how ideas advertise themselves like i can think opposite of me and that's what makes it a thought <laughs> right and to to argue that my thoughts are are all water stamped with my race and culture is to be anti-intellectual i guess at its core and what that's what's in, that's what's insane about about this notion is that ultimately it is it is anti thinking and it you know it becomes like it, it, it seeking to kill this idea that you can be that that there's something about being french or about being american that is uh that's worth preserving or that is an identity that that has responsibilities as well as rights attended to it that every right has a has a concomitant responsibility that goes along with it Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm I'm pretty um I'm pretty skeptical about. Well, first of all, I I I I feel like um if you look at any uh any time that people who are in a minority and are be, being treated poorly end up getting out of that, there has to be a period along what did uh, Stalin called it? You know, there's that period where you the the oh shit, what's it called? The um, dictatorship of the proletariat mm. is that what they called it? There's a period, like, okay, we got the dictatorship of the proletariat. There's going to be this period, I got to let you guys know, things are going to be a little bit rough here in the Soviet Union while we make sure that we get good in Soviet Union. Yeah, let's say 30 million dead. <laughs> but, okay, no, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to draw that line exactly, but I'm saying that I think if you look at any group, you have to be radicalized at some point in order to get noticed and in order to be heard and in order to attract people to understanding, hey, so this is kind of, this is real screwed up. Like, people are, people are getting lynched. Like, right. innocent, innocent people are being lynched for no reason. And like that's a, we have to stop this, guys. This is a, this is a terrible thing, and so there's a period where you have to set yourself apart and and be heard and and and. But I don't know. And this is maybe this is the privilege talking, but I feel like there are, there are so many people who cannot wait to lose their own identity inside of some bigger group because that's where they feel like they the, the identity that they seek to find, ironically enough, is by being in the group that's shutting everybody else down. And, you know, I, so on the one hand, while I, under, I, underst- I understand and respect the need to be heard and to have your needs redressed, however you decide to do it, I'm always, I'm always a little bit skeptical of people who seem to be getting addicted to being the underdog, mm. because I'm not sure that is an empowering approach to life. Well, my people were super white trash, so I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you have people? But my super white trash people just, like... 
basically had to do it all themselves? Well, both, both of my parents were addicted to super fun, and uh, I had to raise myself inside of my own diaper. Super fun? You, oh, you guys probably you guys probably had cocaine. We couldn't even afford cocaine. We had super fun. Super fun. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was <laughs> pencil shavings and poop. And you snorted it or, or shot it. It didn't matter. It didn't do anything, and it ruined their lives. You know, there are 300 million Americans, mm-hmm. and that is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the people in the world, uh, really a small number of people. It's like what, 2%, something like that? No, no, that can't be right. I'm not doing math well. There's a 6 billion people, right? Yeah, I think closer to 7 now. Mm. Um, and in all of, in, uh, and, I, and I really think that, that, at least right now, that we, uh, America has stopped manufacturing cars really except for chrysler i don't know i think bob did bob dylan do a chrysler ad is that correct except for chrysler yeah i, I heard We're, it on the i heard it mentioned on uh, the radio today and i thought i was having a stroke they played yeah, part of the nothing, commercial is there something more american than america Ugh. i don't think so i don't think so <laughs> how'd that turn out was it dignified uh he looked a little plastic surgery oh his face was in it his face was super in it bob dylan and, and his face were talking about chrysler in a commercial yeah, he looked like wow. his face looked like a change purse that somebody had covered with whiteout. <laughs> Do you remember when he wouldn't even let people use his songs for stuff? Yeah, that, that, those days are gone. <laughs> but I mean, even with that, even uh, like power windows, let, let us make your car because well, is there anything more American than America? <laughs> even that is really what we're exporting is ideas and the the ideas and the the. Um, the bullshit that we are coming up with in terms of enter- entertainment, infotainment, and this... Infomusement. Uh, and the <laughs> infomusement and this huge fire hose of ideas that we are just spraying into the air. Like, the, in- the entirety of it is a product of the privilege that we have scraped and stolen from the rest of the world. Like, we have created a... A salon in this country <laughs> out of some some shit we found on the ground when we got here that we that we uh, that we killed the people that were here already and took and then all the raping that we do the daily daily cultural raping that we do we have created a salon where we are producing Chrysler ads uh, Angry Birds um. And, uh, like, Shia LaBeouf movies. <laughs> when you put it that way. <laughs> and, uh, and so, like, criticism from within here seems so, like, so much a product. I mean, it's all still in the shit fountain. Like... All, all of the cultural criticism, all of the angry Twitter yelling, it's all in the same fountain of of like language culture. We are we are deriving. I mean, we are we are producing on behalf of the world right now in this moment in time. And 150 years from now, we may be speaking Indonesian here, and that all may be gone. Uh, and. Right now, it seems like we owe ourselves to be digesting it 
as open-mindedly as possible the stuff that we're making, the ideas that we're having. It seems like an incredible missed opportunity to not be adopting and espousing the most open-minded possible way of thinking as a group of people and as a culture because we are in a we're in a rare moment where all we're being asked to do is generate ideas all we are responsible for is making words and ideas and games and plays and to be to be turning on ourselves and you know, hyper nitpicking, looking for a grammar of of equality when every idea could be in play, every single notion is up in the air. Uh, it's it is a it's a strange impulse and one that I don't know. It's very human, but. And, and when you have, um, when you spend your day looking for that grammar of equality, something else is going to happen. What you've talked about before, which is the bad words problem. And so we all uh, we all agree, or are compelled to agree, that there are is this increasing corpus of bad words. These things we must never use, or that we must always use. Oh, bad ideas are are the are the real scary thing, right? But the, but the bad ideas and the bad words. What I'm trying to get at, though, is you can continue to to do your southern sheriff speak around your buddies, and that's not going to do a damn thing except you make you feel more and more like you're the one who's marginalized now. Because for everybody in our, all of our friends over here on the left side of the dial, there are just as many people on the other side who are just as incredulous about how they've been left behind. Yeah. And, and well, that just, we just keep, we just keep making that split like broader and broader when we keep saying which ideas are okay to think. The idea uh, that's curious to me right now is that football is this terrible crime that we are inflicting on football players, right? That football is violent, which is like a new idea, I guess, to some people. Well, that it's and, permanently violent. Well, yeah, and that these, and that these uh, football players uh, are being, for our amusement, this is the beginning of every one of these sort of screeds, for our, for the amusement of some rich corporations... These football players are being paid millions of dollars to hit each other really hard, and then 20 years later, they have Parkinson's disease. And this is a thing that should be outlawed. And it, the, the, the premise of that argument, th- this, is what, this is what confuses me. It is like threaded throughout these arguments is a kind of weird it's the same argument that the catholic church uses to fight abortion and the death penalty it is the idea that human life is somehow sacred above and beyond any individual human life and what that human life actually is or represents but that the i that the that human life capital h capital l is somehow sacred and more important, more valuable than it might appear to be in any one instance. And so, hmm. the, the fact that these football players are hurting themselves, and that they do it knowingly, and that they do it for great reward, and that they are heroes and champions, 
but then later on the, they suffer. And maybe when, maybe when somebody said to them when they were 16 or 20, like, you know, someday you're going to suffer, maybe they didn't know exactly what that meant. And they agreed to something that they couldn't, couldn't possibly have understood all the way. Implying that the people who gave them that money knew to a pretty good certainty that they were going to get right, that the head people, injuries or something. That the people that gave them that money were like actually relishing that one day they were going to have Parkinson's disease. <laughs> but that... You know, and I think about this in terms of Muhammad Ali, one of the great champions of human of the 20th century and of human life. And Muhammad Ali is suffering from from a tremor from Parkinson's and a tremor that that we that that kind of shames us and that we wouldn't have wished on him. He is our hero. But would anyone have had Muhammad Ali not fight? Would anyone have asked Muhammad Ali to have fought one fight? fewer like muhammad ali fought he was a hero to the world he's the most recognized name on the planet and and in his later years he suffers uh, battle damage and the the idea that we would put a stop that, 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 that we would do anything other than celebrate every aspect of it you know because the fact is we don't know if muhammad ali had never boxed whether or not he would have gotten Parkinson's anyway, because we don't understand Parkinson's. Hmm. He, you know, my, my uh, grand aunt died of Parkinson's and she was never in a boxing match. So wait, now are, are you, you're saying, so I mean, part of that is that we've got information that we didn't have 40, 50 years ago about right. these sorts of things. Yeah. So but incomplete. You're saying, you're saying retroactive continuity, let's go back and sort of, uh, let, let's all collectively disparage what boxing has done over the years in order to make sure it never happens again. Or are you saying it, so? I'm, but uh, the, you don't think that we should take the information we know about things like traumatic brain injury and try to prevent it? Well, I mean, have, have your guys hitting harder? You know, I, what se- what seems to me is that I mean, I, when when I'm in Brooklyn now, and every kid under the age of fourteen is wearing a bicycle helmet to go to the store and not even on a bicycle. His <laughs> parents are just putting, they're putting helmets on him just to go out the door because of what we think we know about traumatic brain injury and how dangerous the world is. Like ultimately the world is dangerous. Human life is nasty, brutish and short. We not one of us dies the way we would want. There is no way for us to live forever. There is no way for us to escape disease. There is no way for us to escape injury. And yet, in these certain pockets of, of what it is to be human, we suddenly ascribe all this injustice to certain kinds of injuries, to certain kinds of disease, to certain kinds of misfortune. And by ascribing injustice to it, it doesn't mean that those things actually are unjust. It's just that we've ascribed injustice to them. And, and so the traumatic brain injury that a football player receives is now a, a, a source of all this, uh, this conversation to the effect that maybe we should ban football playing. But the traumatic brain injury of all the U.S. soldiers that are just receiving brain injury as a result of bombs going off around them all the time 
that's a conversation that we're tabling for now. And the fact that people get traumatic brain injury all the time just driving in their cars or playing on the playground is a thing that we cannot ascribe an injustice to. So we just accept as part of life. Hmm. And the reality is we all die so soon and that human life actually is not that precious, you know, and that every death is a tragedy to the people standing immediately in the vicinity of it. But as you get further away from any one particular death in either time or geography, that death recedes in importance until right now there are hundreds of thousands of people dying all around the world of various causes, some of them incredibly unjust, but none of us are thinking about them or have the capacity to think about them. And th- but but what, what confuses me is that sometimes we will decide that one person's life or a small group of people's lives have this sanctity all of a sudden and that their deaths are so unjust because we imagine that uh, that the, the that there's injustice in the prematurity of their death that their de- their lives could have been prolonged or that that the you know that the that the deaths are the product of some conspiracy and it's never a question of like that person's you know like James Gandolfini's death is a tragedy because of all the movies he didn't make and I, I saw a movie with him the other day, and I was like, that makes me sad. His death is a tragedy. I wish I had seen some movies he made. But uh, some more movies that he made. But really, no, James Gandolfini died when he died. And he did what he did. And there isn't a tragic element to it, ultimately. It's, it is, uh, in a way, there is no tragedy because all things are happening as they are happening you know it's it, it, it is a trick of the mind to think that um really that there is such a thing as injustice and it isn't to say that that trick of the mind isn't real and that we don't live in a world where that trick of the mind is as real to us as anything but it is a technology of the mind. It's an, it's, a, it's an idea, a mental process that we don't investigate. We, we, just, we accept the notion that, that there are tragic deaths and the more boxes we can tick off preventable uh, violent, uncool, somebody else profited. You know, we're checking off all these boxes in on the injustice ch- uh, checklist, and we, we check off enough of them, and it's like, this is an unjust death, and this other one is more just, and then that one is a righteous one, or whatever. And it's just like, it's all part of a, it's all part of a game we're playing that, with ourselves that we're not that we don't reflect on, I guess, is my only comment on it. And I wish we did. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
Is this another one that you're not going to put out? No, I'll put this one out. <laughs> I have to pee so bad. 